We're here to worship God in many facets every Sunday morning through singing, through music, through service, and through the exaltation of God's word. So if you would, please open to John chapter 15. Two weeks ago, we looked into verses 1 through 3, and this morning our focus will be verses 4 through 8. I'm going to go ahead and read verses 1 through 8 to set this tone for that which we'll look into this morning. These are the words of the Lord Jesus Christ the night before he was to be arrested and lay down his life as a sacrifice for many. He's with his now faithful 11 disciples. Judas has been cast out. He's been ordered out. And Jesus is now ministering to them in this portion of Scripture known as the Upper Room Discourse. And he says, chapter 15, verse 1, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it, so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me and my word abides in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Please join me in prayer. Father, we come before you now in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and we ask that by your grace, you would chisel away any hardness in our hearts, that you would break off any self-confidence, that we would understand this morning what it is to truly abide in the vine, that we as branches, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, saved by grace, justified by faith, would grasp this deep, great truth and that your people would be built up in the word this morning for more than anything else, your glory. And anyone here this morning who's yet dead in trespasses and sins, dead to the new birth that today would be the day for which you would invade their lives and transform them from the inside out, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Apart from me, you can do nothing, said Jesus to his 11 disciples. The focus is here on believers, the focus in these verses, bearing fruit of eternal value. Now, this does not mean that men can do nothing at all outside of a living relationship with Jesus Christ. 
I mean, many people without Christ, even haters of Christ, have natural ability by common grace. Even wicked men are capable of doing everything from building a model airplane to uh, constructing and launching a space shuttle. So doing nothing here in this context has to do with nothing of eternal value. Context is spiritual fruit. And no unbeliever ever does anything of eternal value, period. Ever. It's impossible. I mean, even many believers appear to be bearing great spiritual fruit because they are perhaps either very influential, they possess a charismatic personality, or a wealth of information. Others display exuberant zeal for the name of Jesus Christ, and they have a wealth of experience to offer by way of many years of ministry. Yet in the end, for some, it will be revealed that their apparent abundant fruitfulness was not as abundant as perceived. Due to the fact that their ministry, their service, was the product of much self-reliance. A confidence in ability. A trust in intellect, diligence, enthusiasm, or service. And sometimes this is outwardly evident, revealed by the self-centeredness of some individuals. Now, most people, as you know, will naturally shy away from those who have an inflated view of themselves. It's a very irritating place to be. (laughs) I mean, you know the ones who place themselves at the center of every conversation? And in a subtle, roundabout way pay tribute to themselves while making others look inferior. And unfortunately, unfortunately, such boasting exists even in the church today. I've met men like this, Christians, well-educated but incredibly narcissistic. They're so self-absorbed that they drip when they walk in the room. And then they leave a stain when they finally leave. This is why Paul exhorted us in Romans chapter 12, verse 3, not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. And the context of that statement in Romans has everything to do with spiritual gifts. Spiritual what? Gifts which can lead to pride if they're not governed by humility and love. For humility and love reveals utter dependence upon Jesus Christ. Talking about true humility, not an outward false type of humility, a deep down humility, dependence. And when we think of spiritual pride, Who else comes to mind but the church of Corinth? They were spiritual show-offs. They were jockeying for position, competing for attention and prominence within the gathering of the saints. Had no regard for anyone else but themselves. Putting on display their abilities as though they had some spiritual capacity of their own. 
If you're familiar with the writings of Paul to the church of Corinth, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And it's important that we understand as we begin here this morning that our spiritual gifts do not reflect whatsoever our capabilities. What they reflect is God's grace alone. God's grace. And that's why Paul asked the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, what do you have that you did not receive? But if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? In the same chapter, and down in verse 16, Paul writes, I exhort you, therefore, be imitators of me. For this reason, I have sent to you Timothy, who's my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, and he will remind you of my ways, which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. Now, some have become arrogant, as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I shall find out, not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. What do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? Now, apparently some of the Corinthians thought they no longer needed instruction. I mean, after all, they reasoned, you know, we've, been, we've had the best teachers, Apollos, Peter, and even the Apostle Paul himself. What need do we have of more instruction? We see that in 1 Corinthians 3. But the fact of the matter was that they had just enough knowledge to inflate their egos. That's a dangerous place to be, friends. They were terribly ignorant, however, with regard to God's power. God's power. Everything that they had, everything that you have as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ is a gift from God. Therefore, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. 1 Corinthians 1, 31. Jesus said to these 11 disciples, this night, these very men who walked with him, who learned from him, who were anointed, commissioned, and sent out by him, that apart from me, you can do nothing. The title of the message this morning is The Key to an abundant, fruit-bearing life. First, a little review. Here now is the final I am statement of the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 1, I am the true vine. Jesus declares of himself, I am the true vine. I am the only vine. And in his allegory of the vine in the, in the branches, Jesus certainly was thinking about Israel. Which is to say that he has taken the place of Israel as God's true planting. And then this new concept is that God's vineyard holds one vine. One, Jesus Christ. So no longer is Israel automatically seen as vines growing in God's vineyard. God's choice vine was planted in Canaan with the purpose of bearing fruit. Israel, to bear fruit. And as we compare Scripture with Scripture, the grapes in God's vineyard in the Old Testament were justice and righteousness. And in the New Testament, we see that the fruit of the Spirit is Christ-likeness. In Isaiah chapter 5, verse 7, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts 
is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah, his delightful plant. Thus he looked for justice. But behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. So Isaiah here describes two kinds of wickedness in order to point out how far Israel was gone from being a fruit-bearing vineyard. Now, as you recall, if you were with, with us, the vineyard was one of Israel's most prized symbols with regard to its national inheritance. And Jesus uses this symbol of the symbol of the vine to express judgment in the parable of the wicked vine dresser in Mark chapter 12. Jesus said this as he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and he put a wall around it, dug a vat under the wine press, and built a tower. And he rented it to vine growers and then he went on a journey. At harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers in order to receive some of the produce of the vineyard from the vine growers. And they took him and they beat him and they sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent another slave and they wounded him in the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another and that one they killed. And so with many others, beating some and killing others. He had one more to send, a beloved son. And he sent him last of all to them saying, they will respect my son. But those vine dressers, those vine growers, said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and they killed him and they threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. Have you not even read this scripture, Jesus said? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to seize him, and yet they feared the people, for they understood that he spoke the parable against them. Against who? The Pharisees, Israel. I mean, the owner of the vineyard sends finally his own son after having sent many prophets. That's who his messengers represent, and Israel killed them. He finally sends his own son. They kill him. And the result is that the owner would come and destroy the vine dresser, vine dressers, Israel, and give it to others representing Gentile believers, representing the birth of the church. And then the vineyard will be given to a new people who will be faithful tenants. Men and women from throughout the world are now branches growing from one stock Jesus Christ. He's the only way to heaven. He's the only way to be saved. He's the only source of spiritual life. He is the true vine. And here in John 15, Jesus is revising Israel's assumption about territory. Their assumption about faith as being only theirs. So Jesus is saying that God's vineyard has but one vine and therefore attachment to God comes only through him. Not a system, through him. And when we get to the New Testament, fruitfulness of his vine is Christ-likeness, made evident by fruit of the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 reads, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. 
In Colossians chapter 1, verse 10, we're commanded to be filled with the knowledge of his will as believers in order that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Jesus Christ alone is the true vine because he is life because he's truth, because he is the only way. And what we see before us this morning in our text, in which we are studying, is four points outlined for you in your bulletin. Number one, we see true spiritual life in the vine. True spiritual power in the vine, number two. And number three, true spiritual fulfillment in the vine. And then we'll conclu- we will conclude with true spiritual judgment. First, let's look at verses four and five, true spiritual life. True spiritual life. Abide in me, and I in you, is the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. Now, the word abide is repeated three times in one verse, verse 4, and ten times in verses 4 through 10. And the word abide means this. It means to remain. It means to continue. It means to stay around. If you turn or look at the screen to Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 21, we read the words of the Apostle Paul to the church of Colossae, which reads, And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, okay, that's what I was, that's what you were before Christ, Yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him, what? Holy and blameless and beyond reproach. That's what you are in Christ. If. If indeed you continue. If indeed you abide. If indeed you remain in the faith, firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. Now, let's compare to that to 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, speaking of those who actually profess to be teachers of the word of God. Notice, they, they went out from us, but they were not really of us, for if they had been with us, they would have remained with us. They would would have continued on with us, but they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. True believers continue. True believers remain. True believers abide. They love, they trust, and obey. This is the reality and desire of their life because they've been saved. Obedience springs forth out of love for Christ because he first loved us. He initiated this relationship. So an abiding, continuing, ongoing relationship with Jesus Christ is a remaining relationship that he births into existence. So it's important to note here that remaining or continuing on with is not to earn salvation. This is not to gain favor in the sight of God. This is not to hold on to salvation, but again, is evidence of salvation. Those who continue on with, those who continue to abide, prove that they've been saved. 
Otherwise, you could earn your salvation. And because the believer here is organically connected to the vine, it will, without doubt, inevitably bear fruit. There will be fruit. If not, there's either something wrong with the vine, meaning that there is something wrong with the integrity of that vine, and in this case, there's something wrong with Jesus Christ to produce life in the branch, which bears fruit. Or the branch without fruit is simply dead wood. And they are therefore not truly Christian. So those who bear fruit, as all true believers do, are the product of the heavenly vine dresser. And who represents the heavenly vine dresser but God the Father himself? Planting the vine in the vineyard, which represents the incarnation of Jesus Christ, having lowered himself to become a man, and then the branches, which are you and, and me, sinners saved by grace, have life in that vine. And because there's life in the vine, it comes up through the branches, and at the end of those branches are fruit. That we are indeed in the vine. We're saved. Life of the vine gives life to the branch, producing life through that branch. That's fruit of the vine. Now, in addition to such a life, God's going to prune us, is he not? We looked at that last time. He will cleanse the Christian in order that we bear what? More fruit, abundant fruit. If you're in Christ, you will be pruned back. And he uses his word as spiritual Clorox in our lives, amen? To convict Do you get convicted when you hear the word preached properly or read the word properly? Yes. He uses his word to convict, to confront, to reprove, to correct, and to build up. We experience all these things as believers when we come to the word of God. He also cleanses us, he also prunes us back by way of trials. Circumstances in our lives, including pain. It's painful to get nipped back, amen? That's part of growth. You cannot bear more fruit lest you get cut back. This is what the vine dresser does, representing God the Father. Because what he wants to do, friends, is eliminate anything in our lives that will hinder spiritual productivity. He'll cut it back. He'll get our attention that we bear more fruit, which brings glory to him as we shall see. Now, although salvation is the solitary work of God, it's accomplished without any help from us. This is his work. You can do nothing to earn salvation. You're not going to help God out. You didn't help God out when you got saved. Amen? Anyone you know who's an unbeliever, they're not going to help God out. That's impossible. It is the sovereign work of God, the salvific word of God, to come to the Savior and birth life into their spiritually dead soul. For we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Amen? But God provided life. You don't help him out. Now, even though this is God's divine work, it's very important to note here that this kind of abiding that we're looking at this morning is not something that merely happens to us as we sit around and wait. Okay? He's provided life. So, Jesus is not conveying here this idea of just let go and let God. That's not the point. That would only be partial truth. 
Now, granted, you and I did nothing to save ourselves. That was the divine sovereign work of God alone. Yet he's commanding us here, abide in me. Abide. Because if we sit here and have an attitude of just let go and let God, this would, this would be a, a lazy, fatalistic, hyper-Calvinist view of sanctification. Hyper-anything is ugly. What's important for us to understand this morning, brothers and sisters, as believers, is that we have a personal responsibility that is absolutely necessary to an abundant, fruit-bearing life. There's nothing passive. In other words, there's nothing passive about the word abide whatsoever. We don't just lay around waiting for this great cluster of spiritual fruit to appear. You've been saved. You've been inserted into the vine. He has life. Now we are to abide continuing on with him. And we'll see what that means. Notice the absolutes involved in verse 4. Notice. Take a look. As the branch what? cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in the vine. Abide in me, rather. So here we see a necessary precondition. Abide. And what else do we note here? Along with this necessary precondition of abiding, we also see the human impossibility of bearing fruit. Well, this contradicts itself. It's a paradox. Apparently. But it's not. The verse begins with an ellipsis, notice, which is an, uh, an omission of one or more words that we uh, obviously understand. Abide in me and I in you. Which is to say, abide in me and I will abide in you. In other words, safeguard your relationship with me that I may abide in you fully And what's said in the negative, notice in verse 4, he says in the positive in verse 5. Now in verse 4 he says, cannot, unless, neither, unless. And then in verse 5 he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. So verse 4 is in the negative, verse 5 is in the positive, but they both have the same conclusion. Notice, verse 4, neither can you unless you abide in me. Verse 5, apart from me you can do what? Nothing. Nothing. There is no way whatsoever to bear spiritual fruit apart from Jesus Christ. So what does this mean, practically speaking, for us this morning? I mean, after all, if we're in Christ, is his life not in us? I mean, we're always hearing about positional righteousness. And we're always hearing this preacher talk about Christ indwelling the believer by grace through faith. And that it's all a gift. So what does this mean? If it's not an inactive, waiting around for fruit to appear kind of abiding, simply because I'm saved, then what on earth is it? It's a fair question. Is a born-again believer, it's important to understand, before we get into this, that you do indeed, without doubt, have an everlasting, unbreakable union by grace. Never to be snatched away, never to be forsaken, by God. Back in John chapter 10, verse 28, Jesus said, And I give eternal life to them, and they shall never perish. And no one so snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. 
You can't snap, snatch them out of Jesus' hand. You can't snatch them out of the Father's hand because they are one in essence and nature. God the Father, God the Son, indwelt by the Holy Spirit. In Hebrews 10, verse 14, For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. How long? Forever. Everlasting life. Everlasting positional righteousness because of the imputed righteousness of Christ placed upon the account of the believer. However, however, in order to experience the fullness of such a union, this union which is unbreakable, is the benefit of fruit bearing. You want to experience this union to the fullest, there must be spiritual fruit and room made for more by the vine dresser to experience this incredible union. And this is the ex an experience of a deep, deep, rich communion that is the product of the union. The union graced by God, the communion that we desire is to draw near to God personally, intimately, through our Savior Jesus Christ. And so the byproduct, uh, byproduct of this abiding is fruit-bearing. It's to bear fruit. And this is fruit that comes from within, brothers and sisters. Anyone can walk around the church looking busy. Any great Bible teacher can come and, and, and give divine sovereign truth by the grace of God because he knows it so well but can be doing it completely out of the flesh. That's an outward thing. Running around every Sunday, hallelujah, praise the Lord, and it's only outward, superficial. John Stott put it like this, quote, the Christian should resemble a fruit tree, not a Christmas tree. <laughs> For the gaudy decorations of a Christmas tree are only tied on. Whereas fruit grows on a fruit tree, in other words, Christian holiness is not an artificial human accretion, but a natural process of fruit bearing by the power of the Holy Spirit, end quote. The responsibility of this abiding is placed entirely upon the believer here. Entirely upon the believer because of that union, which is unbreakable, you see. It's established by God in the first place. We're commanded, abide. Abide in the vine. This is an aggressive pursuit on our part. An aggressive pursuit of Jesus Christ. To have no confidence in self. To have no confidence in, the, in, the, in, in your flesh. No confidence in your intellect or imagined intellect. Many people think they're intellectual. No self-confidence like the Corinthians. But a daily active faith in Jesus Christ which reveals complete dependence. And to be dependent is to be in hot pursuit. You ever see children? You have babies, some of you. Your baby is completely dependent upon you, mom, amen? Completely dependent upon you. And they pursue you through crying, bellowing. They want you. They're dependent upon you, so they cry out to you until they get your attention, you see. And toddlers are the same. They're dependent upon their mother. See, first and foremost, what we must understand, friends, is that you are powerless to convert anyone, number one, 
You are powerless and incapable of ministering within the body of Jesus Christ. You are void of being able to bear spiritual fruit of any eternal value. Left to ourselves, we're incapable to teach, we're incapable of preaching, discipling, encouraging, singing, worshiping, or preaching. And so much of the church today is powerless due to the fact that they're merely busy doing ministry, programs. A lot of guys are preaching, but they're not abiding in Christ. Many people serve in children's ministry, but they're just reading through the curriculum. They're not dependent on the power of the Spirit of Almighty God to be in prayer all week for those children and for themselves to be able to articulate divine truth with Holy Spirit power. Musicians and singers get up and sing the words of the Lord and the words of the Bible by way of talent. Evangelism by way of method or formula not abiding in Christ. May we do all these things by abiding in Christ. So, true spiritual fruit does not come by way of this outward apparent abiding. You can say hallelujah, amen, and praise Jesus in Christian ease all day long, and it means nothing if it's not a product of abiding in the vine. So, this kind of strength, this kind of power, it doesn't come through abiding by way of some method. But strength and power, true fruit bearing that we're talking about here, comes from the one in whom we abide, you see. The one in whom we abide. This personal, intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. It's personal and it's individual. And then corporately, when we join together and serve in that manner, fruit of the Spirit, this is a vine full of fruit as we serve like that. And for us to simply realize this truth, deep down we can have passionate understanding of this truth and it's not enough agreeing with this is not enough a disciple of Jesus Christ must maintain a spirit of utter dependence upon the source you can't simply have a heart attitude for this oh I agree with that I get moved when I hear that that's not abiding It's not until we subject ourselves to Jesus Christ realizing our complete inability to do anything of spiritual worth, anything that honors God is abiding even possible. And then we cry out to him daily for the ability, the ability to bear spiritual fruit. And then we, we allow that truth, His truth, the Word of God, to seize our heart, to grip our heart. That's where we begin. If you're not there already. So abiding is not to be reduced to some subjective, mystical kind of inner feeling. The mark of abiding heart, again, is not by mere agreement. It begins with a zealous pursuit. Hot pursuit. And a conscience that is clear before God. And then the sole purpose of the branch, which is to bear, bear fruit according to his word. Notice, look, look what it includes. Obedience to Jesus' commands, verse 10. 
If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have my Father's commandments and abide in his love. If we move on to verse 11, these things I have spoken to you that, you that my joy may be in you. This is what it is to experience joy. If we're joyless, we must question whether or not we're truly abiding. And then we also see the fruit of that as verse 12, having love for one another. Believers loving one another. We're witnesses to the world in verse 16 and verse 27. And all this kind of fruit is a product of persevering dependence upon the vine. We're pressing in on Jesus here. We're pressing in on the Lord. Pursuing Him individually. And notice the connection, friends. Notice the connection. All such fruit is the result of effective abiding in Him along with this prayer. Prayer. Notice the spiritual power, verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask what? Come on. Whatever you wish and it shall be done for you. Whatever you wish. As we abide in him and his word abides in us, we ask whatever we wish and the guarantee is that it shall be done for you. This kind of deep connection is maintained by obedience and prayer. Obedience, prayer. Which means a conscious embracing of the authority of God's word. Embracing this truth and then constant contact with him via prayer. That's the combination. You know, we have but one offensive weapon in the armor of God. If you're not familiar with the whole armor of God, you can go to Ephesians chapter 6 and look at and read what the armor of God is. If you don't know what those pieces represent and how you practically apply that to your life, go to our website when we were in Ephesians 6 and we did Sunday by Sunday one piece of armor per Sunday so that you understand what each piece represents and how you apply it. The sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. That's the only offensive weapon there is in the entire armor of God. But many Christians are attempting to draw a sword from someone else's sheath. How many kids who grew up in Christian homes are attempting to grab mommy or daddy's sword from their sheath? They're just regurgitating the things they've heard their entire lives. They're not bringing out the sword on their own. They're not going to the word on their own. They're not abiding in the word on their own. We can't depend on the sword of a faithful friend. We can't depend on the sword of a faithful counselor, a faithful Bible teacher. You can't wield it if you don't wear it. You can't recall it if you don't study it. You can't apply it if you don't memorize it and submit to it. And every piece of armor as you study that, you will see is interwoven with prayer. Every piece of armor interwoven with prayer. Because Ephesians 6.18 says, praying at all times in what? In the Spirit. That doesn't mean some strange language. It means according to the Word of God. So if we do wield the sword, the Word of God, it lives within you. And when you wield the sword because it, it lives within you, guess what you'll be driven to do in response to the powerful Word of God? because you'll see how helpless we really are, you'll be driven to dependent prayer. Prayer of dependence. Lord, your word, your law is perfect. Grant me your grace to live according to your word. 
Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own what? Understanding, but in all your ways, acknowledge Him. Him. To live like this, you will be like the young men addressed by John who were strong but yet very reliant and dependent. 1 John chapter 2, verse 14. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong. And the word of God, what? Abides in you. And you have overcome the evil one. There's only one way to overcome the evil one. You don't run and chase after the devil start casting out demons in the name of Jesus and all this crazy nonsense, you're called to do one thing as a believer, stand and what? Resist. Put on the whole armor of God. So Jesus said here in verse 5 that we as branches are helpless and can do nothing apart from Him, the vine. Just as a branch apart from the vine can do nothing but shrivel and die... So too, apart from Jesus Christ, we're capable of no good whatsoever outside of abiding in that vine, in Him. Paul said it clearly. Romans 7, 18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. I've said it a million times. The only good thing in me is Jesus Christ in me. He is it. I called a friend yesterday. I said, how you doing, brother? He said, much better than I deserve. That's right. Much better than you deserve, much better than I deserve. Because of his grace. I know nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. Now, also according to verse 5, God intends for us to do something good. Namely, to bear fruit. And he promises to do for us here what we cannot do for ourselves. So how do we attain this? How on earth do we attain this thing? How do we glorify him? And then Jesus, he goes on here to give us the plain and clear answer. You ask as you abide. You ask as you abide. And then whatever you wish, it shall be done for you. What do we do? We pray as we abide. We ask God to do for us through Christ what we cannot do for ourselves. And you know what that is, friends? It's bearing fruit. We can't do that. Have you ever tried? Okay. Through the Spirit. Mm, love. Mm, joy. Mm, peace. Mm, patience. Mm, kindness. Mm, gentleness. Mm, goodness. Mm, self-control. Oof, and faithfulness. No. It's not a striving outwardly to uphold this thing. It's abiding in the vine and then the fruit of the Spirit. It just comes out. It just is made visible. You see, prayer is the open admission that without Christ, we can indeed do nothing. Nothing. Regardless of how much you know. Prayer is the turning away from self-confidence. Leaning in on your own understanding. To keep you from trusting in talent. To keep you from trusting, here's a big one, trusting in spiritual giftedness. Well, this is my gift. I'm a mighty preacher of God. Go up like that and you will fall on your face. Sometime. So do you see yourself as being helpless, believers? 
If you're an unbeliever, you are completely helpless. You're dead. You must repent. You must repent. You must believe. You must embrace Christ. You must turn from your sin. We must see ourselves as being helpless from bearing fruit of the Spirit. I can't do that in and of my own strength. We haven't a hope in the world unless we press into Jesus Christ, who is the source, the life-giving vine. Abiding in his word and prayer. John Piper writes this, quote, Prayer humbles us as needy and exalts God as wealthy. And here in verse 7, Jesus is evidently referring back to the preceding part of his discourse in chapter 14, verse 13, where he says this, John 14, 13, whatever you ask in my name, this I will what? This I will do. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. So when the Word of God abides in our mind, we hear and we know the very mind and heart of Christ. To know his Word is to know Christ. Because he never changes. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Unchanging. And then prayer is is God's way for us to experience the fullness of joy. Are you joyless? Are you joyless? Look at your prayer life. And we respond to God's word as it burns within our hearts. And then we can't contain it anymore. So we have to release that through prayer. Because I see truly how helpless I am. Power of the word. Jonathan Edwards referred to prayer as as a vent. He said this, quote, Prayer seemed to be natural to me as the breath by which the inward burnings of my heart gave vent. End quote. So when an individual is the place of knowing deep, deep down within his very being that such strength comes not from, a merely, from merely abiding. It's not about abiding, but rather the one in whom we abide. It's all Jesus. We don't abide in the fruit of the Spirit of Galatians 5. We abide in Christ so that we bear fruit of the Spirit. That's what we must not be mistaken about. We don't abide in the truth of that verse, but we abide in Jesus and we will bear the fruit of that verse. This kind of power, it's this dependence which leads to power that moves men and women to serve Jesus Christ in ways that were so far and are so far beyond their manner of thinking that they end up doing things in the power of Christ that they could never have comprehended on any given day. It's this kind of of abiding in Jesus that gives men vision, passion, zeal, and power far beyond what they're capable of. And this kind of zeal and this kind of power comes from the limitless sufficiency of Jesus Christ alone. Alone. It's not Jesus plus my talent. It's not Jesus plus my abilities. It's not Jesus plus my contacts. It's not Jesus plus my creativity, and it's certainly not Jesus plus my spiritual gifts that come from him in the first place. 
This fruit-bearing power from top to bottom, head to toe, mind to soul, is dependent power. In such a life of dependent power is what the great 17th century theologian John Owen recognized in and through the life of an uneducated tinker turned preacher by the name of John Bunyan. Now a tinker's trade was the trade of a tinsmith. And in Bunyan's day, this kind of trade had a reputation of being a lowly sort of occupation. I mean, Bunyan was really no more than an unskilled handyman at tin metal repair. That's what he did. Turned preacher, anointed by God. But Owen, in contrast, was a great scholar and dignitary. Sinclair Ferguson writes about John Owen. He said this, quote, To read John Owen is to enter a rare world. Whatever I, whenever I return to one of his works, I find myself asking, why do I spend time reading lesser literature? End quote. J.I. Packer, a great theologian in our day, still breathing, he said this, quote, I owe more to John Owen than any other theologian, ancient or modern. We'll have our library up. We'll have plenty of Owen in there for you to read. We'll be beating your head against a wall after a couple pages. Trust me. You might be smarter than I, but he's a great read. But besides his academic and literary works, Owen was also involved in affairs of state. And Owen would go out to hear John Bunyan preach. And Charles II, hearing of it, asked the doctor, John Owen, how someone as thoroughly educated as he would want to hear a mere tinker preach. Owen replied, quote, May it please your majesty, if I could possess the tinker's ability to grip men's hearts, I would gladly give in exchange all my learning. End quote. People would go home and have dreams and or nightmares about this man and his message. Because the power of God spoke through this man. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. As Ryan read from this morning. For consider your calling, brethren, 1 Corinthians 1.26, that there are not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world, and the desp and despise God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. And when the word of Christ so fills the believer's mind, it shapes him, it molds him, it conforms him more to the image of Jesus Christ. And then whatever, whatever he or she asks in relation to bearing spiritual fruit, the guarantee is that you shall receive it. It's the guarantee. So when you insistently cultivate and protect this intimate relationship with Jesus, his words which govern your very life and mind, will drive you to prayer and your heart will be so affixed to Christ and His will that you will instinctively ask for the things that He wants to freely give you. And He'll give them to you. In order to what? Bear fruit. To bear fruit. 
This is just like Jesus asking. Because you have the mind of Christ, it might as well be Jesus asking. You have the mind of Christ conformed to the image of Christ. You ask according to the will of Christ, and God guarantees that he gives it to you. And then the fruit, now get this, the fruit of that fruitfulness, the fruit of that fruitfulness is revealed in the very next verse. Notice, verse 8, here we have true spiritual fulfillment. Are you looking for spiritual fulfillment? I hope so. I am. You don't need to go into all these mystical environments and all this nonsense and garb garbage that they're teaching out there today. It's not emotionalism. It's birthed out of objective truth. Look at the result, verse 8. First, the first result is this. By this, okay, this abiding, this praying, abiding in Christ, praying to bear fruit. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. God's glorified that we bear much fruit. God's glorified that we abide in Christ. God's glorified that we're completely dependent upon Jesus. God's glorified because we pray, because we know we're completely impotent, we're completely powerless, and we must abide in Jesus. God's glorified because you bear much fruit. So the most honoring thing to the vine dresser here, which represents God the Father, is that the branches of his vineyard bear fruit. It's very simple. This is where the greatness of God is put on display, brothers and sisters, that we bear fruit of Spirit. Just as Jesus glorified the Father through his life, so too would his disciples. So too shall you, so too shall I. That's the first result. The second result of fruit bearing is this. And so, what? Prove to be my disciples. And so prove to be mine. So the proof of discipleship is abiding, growing, continuing on with, bearing fruit. This is the proof of discipleship. In other words, this is the proof of Christianity. This is the proof of salvation. Proof. Remember back in John 8? Because of the power and authority of the words of Jesus Christ, because of his miracles, the Jews began to believe in Jesus outwardly. Jesus, therefore, was saying to those Jews who had believed in him superficially, if, if you abide in my word, then you are truly my disciples indeed. In John chapter 14, verse 15, in John chapter 14, verse 21, and verse 24, if you love me, you will keep my word. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. He who does not keep my commandments does not love me. You know, there's nothing more spiritually fulfilling, nothing, than God being glorified through our lives. The greatest spiritual fulfillment that you'll ever experience is God being glorified through your life. And abiding in Christ is the only way to glorify him by way of obedience and prayer. That's abiding in the vine. Because we can. Because of our what? Union, which produces deep and rich communion. We must be driven to deeper communion because of that union. The union's a gift. The communion we must pursue. It's a life of submission to his word. 
complete dependency upon prayer. That is the connection, friends. That is the connection, and that is the guarantee of spiritual growth. That is the guarantee of fruit-bearing. This is the key to an abundant fruit-bearing life, abiding in Jesus and praying. Someone who is given to prayer by, because they're abiding in the Word of God, they never go backward. If you want to use the term backsliding. Spurgeon wrote, quote, You never heard that a man began to backslide, or that a sober man became a drunkard through praying too much. Did you ever hear of a person becoming unkind to his wife, ungenerous to the poor, negligent of public worship, or guilty of grievous sin through being too much in prayer? No. The case is the reverse, end quote. By this, my father is glorified. By this is my father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Such is the life of the believer. Abiding, bearing fruit, walking after, pressing into Jesus. 1 John 2.6, the one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Only possible by abiding this ongoing, ever-deepening relationship to Jesus Christ because he saved you, because he knows you. And you know him because he knows you. He's made himself known to you. That's grace. And if this is the result of one who knows Christ, bearing fruit, glorifying God, if this is the evidence of saving faith, if this kind of life bears witness that we are, in disciple, we are indeed disciples of Jesus Christ, what then is the result of those who do not bear fruit? Although they claim attachment to the vine. They claim attachment to the vine, but they don't bear fruit. What's the result? We'll go backwards, verse 6, for our final point. Spiritual judgment. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire. And they are burned. Bottom line, they're eternally, spiritually judged because they never were true believers. These are not believers who lost salvation. They never were true believers. Don't forget the upper room context here, brothers and sisters. Don't forget what just took place. Judas was there. Judas was a false branch. He was dried in dead wood who appeared outwardly to be attached to the vine, Jesus Christ, and Jesus, because he was fruitless, ordered him out. He cast him out of the room. What you do, do swiftly, which would be to betray him. That's the context. Are you attached to the vine of life? Internally, and therefore eternally. Do you have tr a true relationship with Jesus Christ? Is there fruit to substantiate your said faith? Because vine wood, vine wood is good for nothing if it doesn't bear fruit. It's good for nothing. You can't build anything out of it. You don't construct anything out of it. The Bible says you don't even build, a, cut a peg out of a piece of wood to hold up a pot. It's only good for one thing, and it's good for burning. 
Ezekiel chapter 15, verse 2. Son of man, how is the wood of the vine better than any other wood? The vine branch, which is among the trees of the forest, is wood taken from it to make any object? Or can men make a peg from it to hang any vessel on? Instead, it is thrown into the fire for fuel. The fire devours both ends of it, and its middle is burned. Is it useful for any work? Indeed, when it was whole, no object could be made from it. How much less will it be useful of any work when the fire has devoured it and it is burned? So I will give up the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I will set my face against them. They will go out from one fire, but another fire shall devour them. Israel was a lifeless vine. Jesus Christ is the true vine. And if you're truly in him, there must be fruit. Some fruit. Certainly different measures of fruit for those who are in Christ, but there's some fruit. If you're an unbeliever here this morning, again, you must repent. You are separated from God because of your sin nature. And only he can transform that nature. You must fall on your faces before God, repent of your sin, embrace Christ, turn from your wicked ways, and follow Jesus all the days of your life. And if he's an operating work in your heart right now, he'll enable you to do that. The sign of which is repentance. Faith. Christians, what must we do? What must we do to bear more fruit than we could ever imagine. It begins with a rigorous pursuit of Jesus. To know what it is to abide, first of all. It's been somewhat clear today, I hope, amen? To know what it is to abide. And then to abide. To abide in his word. To seek him in prayer. And do the very things for which he has custom made you to do. You're born again of the Spirit to bear fruit of the Spirit, which glorifies God, proving that you are indeed His, bought at a great, great price. Spiritual fruit, strength, spiritual life, overflow from those that are closest to Jesus. It just comes out like streams of living water. So what or who are you closest to? What consumes your time? What consumes your mind? What consumes your money? What is your passion? Is it Jesus? Are you abiding in him? That's a question that goes out for all of us, beginning with myself. I've been grappling with this for weeks. Do I really know what it is to abide? Lord, do I know what it is to abide? God, I'm helpless to know what it is to abide. God, I'm helpless to be able to abide outside of your grace. Show me your mercy. Show me your grace. Enable me, God, to drive with a hot, passionate pursuit for you so I know what it is to abide, so that I do abide and that I bear much fruit for your glory and so there prove that I am your disciple. Because apart from him, you can do nothing. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. 
We thank you for pruning. We thank you for cleansing us. We thank you that you love us enough to not leave us alone. We thank you for your glorious word. We thank you for the illuminating truth of your word granted to us by the way and the work of the Holy Spirit who's in us. Thank you for saving us. I pray that you'll bless your dear people this morning to have a greater understanding of what it is to abide and then pursue a deeper, richer, abiding life so that we may glorify you and so prove to the world that we are your disciples, that we will love one another, that we'll evangelize, that we'll serve in ministry, that we'll herald the truth, not by way of dependency upon what you've given us, but dependency upon you and you alone. Not methods, but Christ. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him be the glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen.